So does that mean if I dance like that, you guys would clap for me? <laughs> oh. No, no, no. I guarantee, like, no one would come back. Uh, there's a reason. Yeah. No, we are excited. Uh, it's been really wonderful to partner with Courtyard this year, and helping support this trip with the Over and Above offering is just another way that we can do that. So if you want to give towards that trip as you go, there are baskets in the back that say Over and Above. Anything that goes in there will go to help them. Those baskets also have a QR code on it if you want to scan, or there's a way when you go to our online giving page that you can give to this trip. Uh, but it really has been fun to invest uh, in that house and kind of in the college community that way. And along those lines, for college students, students who are here today. Uh, hopefully you guys heard we're having a College Connection luncheon after this service. So if you want to eat lunch, uh, it's on us. We're having Panda Express. You can go out those doors to B3 to the right and we'll have that there for you. Um, but <laughs> without further ado and without any dancing, let's uh, go ahead and jump into the sermon. So there, there was a well-known story that we looked at last week where Jesus has a conversation with a woman at the well. And at the start of the story, Jesus is alone. His disciples have all gone into the town to find food. And this woman comes up to the well to draw water. And Jesus, they have this very long, in-depth kind of theological conversation. And at the end of that conversation, the disciples come back and it says this. It says, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Okay, we were they're surprised to find them talking with a woman. So we didn't really focus much on this detail last week, but uh, they were surprised because in that day and age, there were, there were very strict guidelines around how men and women would interact with each other. And in having this conversation with the woman, Jesus is, is breaking a lot of those norms. So they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. And I didn't want us to skip over that detail because it, it turns out that one of the most remarkable things about Jesus was the way that he interacted with women. Uh, he constantly did it in ways that pushed against the customs of his day, but he did it for a reason. And, and the impact of Jesus' example in this area has changed the world. Like, it is really not an exaggeration to say that the way that Jesus viewed women has dramatically improved the life of every woman who can hear me speaking today. Uh, you may never have thought about Jesus like this, but when it comes to how women are viewed and how women are treated in our world, I think you can argue that no one in human history has made as positive an impact as Jesus Christ did. Now, this morning, we're continuing on in a teaching series that we're calling The Jesus I Wish You Knew. And in it, we're exploring some of the stories of the life of Jesus that we find in the Bible. And along the way, we're getting a picture of the Jesus that the authors of those biographies knew. Many of the biographies that we know as the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written by people who, who really knew Jesus, who lived with him, walked with him, studied with him, saw him. And they wrote their books as a way to try to say, hey, I want you to come and meet the Jesus that I got to know. I want to present to you the Jesus that I wish that you knew. And it turns out that the Jesus they wish that we knew always treated women as God originally designed them to be treated, as equal in worth because they equally bear God's image. Uh, that's the aspect of Jesus' life that we're going to look at in our time together this morning. But to do that, before we actually get to Jesus, we need to take a step back and, and go back to the beginning and talk a little bit about what God's original design was. So to do that, I want to invite you to turn with me in the Bible to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, if it would help you for any reason, there are some red Bibles in those seats in front of you. You can grab one of those and turn to the page number that's there on the screen. But even if you don't know how to find passages in the Bible, Genesis 1, it's like a super easy one to find because it's literally page 1 
because um, that's where the storyline of the Bible begins. And if you look at the storyline of the Bible as a whole, it is really hard to argue, as some people do, that the Bible is sexist or that the Bible is anti-women. Uh, so, for example, while our history and some parts of society today uh, still really work to minimize women's place in the world, that is not a part of God's original intention. So right at the beginning, the book of Genesis, we read this. It says, God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So again, at this point in the story, there, there's no value assigned, right? Like one group is more valuable than the other one. In fact, you see this sort of equality in the very next sentence. The next thing that God does is he gives them a shared mission to work on together. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Again, there's no indication of hierarchy or subordination. They have this shared responsibility. As equal bearers of God's image, they're living in harmony with each other and with God. They're, they're really mutually interdependent. So God's original design for the world was that man and woman would, would partner with him together in community to advance and pursue God's mission here on earth. Uh, that I just further developed in the next chapter. So Genesis 2 is kind of a parallel creation account to Genesis 1. And in verse 18 of Genesis 2, we're reading, and it says this. It says, uh, God creates Adam first, and then he says, it is not good for man to be alone. Um, I'm actually, I've been single parenting it this weekend because my wife and our youngest are out of town. And I can tell you, this is very true. It is not good for man to be alone. <laughs> All three of our older kids would be like, it's really not good for dad to be alone. He doesn't know what he's doing. Um, but anyway, it says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, sometimes people read that word helper, and we just sort of automatically assume it's like a sort of a lower caliber thing. It's like, you know, we watched a Batman movie last night. You think of like Batman and Robin, or like Simon and Garfunkel, right? There's always somebody at the bottom of that chain. But that's not what's going on in the original language. The, the word in Hebrew there, Edzer, that gets translated as helper, is used about two dozen times in the Old Testament. And you know, almost every single time that it's used, you know who it refers to? It refers to God, right? So for example, Psalm 33, it says this. This is one of the ways it's used. It says, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. So this word usually refers to God, who clearly is not inferior to anybody. I don't think its use in Genesis 2 automatically means that it's sort of like a lower tier position. The point of this passage is not to introduce a hierarchy between a man and a woman. It's to introduce the need for community between man and woman. It's not good to be alone, right? God created male and female because it's not good for any of us to be alone. We need people around us who equally, though differently, reflect God's image. So men and women are equal in worth because they equally bear God's image. That's the way that things were supposed to be. But we all know that that's not how things stayed, right? God created humanity uh, to live in a right relationship with him, with each other, and with the world around them. But because of the sinful, stupid, selfish decisions that humans made, all, all that begins to fall apart. All of those relationships begin to dissolve. And, and as a result, things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. And if you look at the second half of Genesis chapter 3, it starts to kind of list out some of the, the consequences. What, what happens as those relationships begin to unravel? And you see how that begins to destroy the relationship between man and woman. God tells the woman, he says, your desire will be for your husband and he'll rule over you. And that is a picture of how human sin begins to taint everything. And really, from here on out, you begin to see that this community that they were created for, it, it falls apart, and it really devolves into this struggle for power and control. And it's here that some really, really destructive forms of relationships between men and women come into play. 
Right? This is where polygamy shows up, right? You know, a guy who has multiple wives. And every time it shows up, it causes nothing but heartache for everybody who's involved in that equation. It's at this point that we begin to see that women are treated as property. You know, so let's say there's a, an attack. You know, your tribe raids another village. You kill off the men. The women, you can take them, make them slaves, do whatever you want to with them. They are property. Now, again, remember, none of this, none of this is God's original design. But this was the reality. This was the situation on the ground when God was like, I got to start to fix things, right? When he, he reached back into history, into our world, and picked one man, Abraham, and said, I'm going to work through you, your family, descendants, to raise up this nation, and I'm going to use this nation to bring my message of light and hope to them. Like, God entered into the world as it was, with all of its imperfections. And what we see all throughout the history of the Bible is that God shows up and just begins slowly, incrementally, working, bringing people back towards his ideal where men and women have equal value because they equally bear God's image. Okay, so all that's just the, the foundation to talk about the role that, that Jesus plays in that movement because Jesus takes this work of restoring God's original design and kind of kicks it into overdrive. So let, let's stop for just a second and think about, okay, what was life like for women in the first century when, when the historical Jesus, when he was alive? So just think about what it was like for women, uh, Jewish women in Palestine. So because God had been working for a couple of thousand years, the situation was better for them than it was in other societies, but it still wasn't what we would consider really great. So for example, you, you see this, like women really have very little value. Uh, they're, they're not considered worthy. And in fact, women weren't allowed to testify in courts in first century Israel because they were considered to be unreliable as witnesses. They just didn't have a lot of value. And you actually see that reflected in some of the prayers that the Jewish people, well, the Jewish men would pray at that time, right? So one of them said, praise be to God that he's not created me a Gentile. Praise be to God that he has not created me a woman. Another one pray, another prayer actually said, God, thank you for not making me a woman or a dog, right? So they're kind of on the same, <laughs> no, I mean, this, this is just what they were praying. And in the culture that Jesus grew up in, Jewish men could divorce their wives basically for any reason they wanted to. Jewish women could not initiate divorce. And they couldn't stop their husband from divorcing them if they wanted them to. So that's kind of the, the culture that Jesus grew up in. And it was, it was even worse in like the, the Greco-Roman culture around them. Greek poets routinely, like all these people that we study in high school, you go back and they, they would write poetry talking about how women were the source of all evil in the world. Uh, Roman law, for example, put a wife under total submission to her husband. He could divorce her even if she went out like without wearing a veil over her head. So this is kind of the world. And knowing that this is the world, this is the culture that Jesus was born into, it really makes it all the more remarkable to see the way that he interacted with women. Because if you read through the stories of Jesus' life in the Bible, pretty much every time he interacts with a woman, he is pushing back against those kinds of practices. And instead, as he pushes back against them, he's trying to model what, what does it look like when men and women relate with each other according to God's original design, where they're equal in worth because they equally bear God's image. So let's just look at a few examples of that, of Jesus doing that. So one of the things I notice right off the bat as you begin to read these stories of Jesus and his interaction with women is that Jesus respected women by interacting with them not as inferiors, but as people who equally bear God's image. So if you read the Bible, you notice that Jesus spends a lot of time with women. Uh, when they ask him questions in public, he doesn't ignore them. He responds to them. When they approach him with a need, he doesn't push them away as if, like, you're not worthy of my time. That, that story we looked at at the beginning when the disciples were surprised that he was talking to this woman. The disciples were surprised that Jesus would invest his time and attention to this woman 
because she was a woman. And in their mind, they weren't, she wasn't worthy of this time and attention. But that's not how Jesus did things. He respected her enough to speak with her. And he saw women as being worthy of his time, his energy, and his focus. Beyond that, Jesus also models God's original intention by befriending women. Uh, for instance, Jesus befriended a pair of sisters, Mary and Martha. You read a number of different stories about his friendship with them, which is very deep. And he was part of a group of friends and followers that, that traveled together that included men and women. This is how that group is described at one point in Luke's biography. Uh, it says, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some of the women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Chusa was the manager of Herod's household, kind of an important position, Susanna, and many others. And look at this little line. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now, again, because we live in the 21st century, the fact that, like, Jesus, you know, travels with a group of a mixed company, it's not a big deal to us. Like, my kids all rode on the bus to a track meet together yesterday, and there were men and women together on the bus. We just see that normally in our world. But it would have been really surprising back then. And if it wasn't enough that Jesus traveled with women, he actually received the financial support of women as well, right? He offers his friendship to this mixed group of men and women. And he's willing to accept the friendship and the support of both men and women. Um, So here's another thing that Jesus did that kind of highlights God's original design. Uh, Jesus empowered women by teaching them. So the fact that he included women when he was teaching would have been pretty scandalous. Male, Male teachers in Jesus' day did not have female students. And a lot of them didn't feel like female students should be educated in God's law. In fact, there were some rabbis who felt it was actually sinful to teach the Torah to a woman because they weren't worthy of learning these high and holy things. But Jesus rejected that. Jesus realized that God's original design was men and women working together in community to advance his purposes in the world, so he rejects that. And he intentionally teaches groups, big groups that have men and women in them. And he has these very long, in-depth conversations about theology and his identity, like with the woman at the well. In fact, if you look, even his choice of teaching locations lends itself to this. Uh, If you're familiar with the story of Jesus, he would occasionally go to the temple in Jerusalem and teach there. And the temple in Jerusalem, it's just really fascinating how it was built. Um, There were certain areas, certain parts of the temple that only certain people were allowed to go to. So that the outer area of the temple, and the the farther in you get, it's like the closer you are to God's presence. So the outer area was called the court of the Gentiles, and anybody could go there. You didn't have to be Jewish, anybody could go in there. But then there was a gate, and you passed into the court of the women. So men and women could go in there, but you had to be Jewish, right? If you weren't Jewish, you couldn't go that far in. And then the next step in was the court of Israel. Only Jewish men could go in there. And then you had the holy place where only male Jewish priests could go. And then you had the holy of holies where God's physical presence was with the people, and only the chief priest could go one day out of each year. So there's this idea that, you know, there are certain places that you can go. So with that in mind, I just want to show you a little story where Jesus is about to start teaching in Mark 12 and try to imagine what part of the temple he's in when he does this. So it says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Right, so Jesus is clearly in a part of the temple where Jewish women can be because there's this widow there making her offering. And immediately after this story, Jesus begins to teach the crowd that is there, which includes men and women. In fact, he even holds this woman up as a stunning example of faith. So Jesus empowers women by, by teaching them. 
But he doesn't just do that. He actually also commissioned women to go and tell other people about him. So if you read the story of the resurrection of Jesus, uh, the very first person that Jesus appeared to after the resurrection to say that he'd come back to life was a woman, right? It was Mary Magdalene. And he didn't just appear to her. He then said, hey, Mary, I want you to take this message and go tell all the rest of my disciples that what God has done, that I'm back. I mean, again, think about how remarkable that was. Mary wouldn't have been able to testify that in, about that in a court of law because women weren't considered reliable witnesses. But Jesus felt like she was worthy to carry this message. If you stop and think about it, the very first person to ever announce to someone else the good news that Jesus is risen, what we build our entire faith on, was a woman. Right? And the early church recognized this, where they actually gave Mary this title. They called her the Apostle to the Apostles. Right? Apostles are people who've been charged to, to go out and spread the message of Jesus to others. And she's the one who initially gave that message to them. So Jesus is always working to, to commission women, again, to, to partner in this work that God is doing in the world. But beyond that, I think it's really interesting when you look at the teaching of Jesus, some of the things that he did to try and defend women. So, for example, let's go back to that topic of divorce for a moment. So, in Matthew's biography of Jesus, there's this moment where some religious leaders come up to Jesus, and they have a question with, for him about divorce. They ask him, like, okay, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Okay, so a little bit of background on this. Um, at that day and age, there were rival schools of thought on what constituted legal grounds for divorce. So there was one very well-known rabbi, a guy named Shammai, and he and his disciples, they took the view that the only legitimate reason to get a divorce was adultery, right? If she's been unfaithful, you can get a divorce. So there was another very prominent rabbi named Hillel, and he and his disciples had a, a much more expansive view on reasons that were appropriate for divorce. So in him, you can read about some of his examples. Literally, it was pretty much anything. If she burned your dinner, you can divorce her. And so they're just kind of asking Jesus to weigh in. It's kind of like if you go to a, a town hall meeting today with politicians, and it's like, you know, so-and-so, you're running for city council. What's your take on topic X? And they're like, Jesus, rabbis today are talking about this. What's your take on the whole divorce thing? And Jesus responds, he replies by saying, you know what, divorce was never part of the plan from the beginning. He goes back to that Genesis passage we looked at, and he highlights what God's original design for humanity was. It was men and women, equal in worth, equally bearing God's image that are designed to be in community together. And, and a marriage is, is a part of that community. And it's in the health of that relationship that they can work together to advance and pursue God's message here on earth. So Jesus says, ah, divorce was never part of the plan. Well, they follow up with a question. They're like, okay, well, if divorce was never part of the plan, why did Moses command the man get, give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? In other words, if divorce isn't part of God's original idea, why do we have a law saying when it's okay to do that? Now, again, we need to remember in, in, this, in this day and age how this law was being interpreted. It was interpreted to say that only men could initiate divorce. And again, think about the, the, the situation, just the life situation for, men in the, for women in the first century. Women in the first century were absolutely, completely, 100% dependent on men financially. Right? If you were a woman, you were either provided for by your father or by your husband. Like you weren't working on your own, you weren't starting your own startup, your business, things like that. They were completely dependent on women. That's just how it was. And law, this law, as rabbis like Hillel were interpreting it, said, okay, men, you can divorce your wife for any reason at all. And, and the women have no recourse in the matter. 
So just think about the, the vulnerability that puts a woman in. Think about the position that puts her in, where she could end up getting passed from husband to husband with no real hope that things could be improved. Or she gets divorced and nobody will remarry her, and she's on her own, and she has literally no way to provide for herself. So it's with an eye to the way that this system hurts women that Jesus replies to their question. Well, why did Moses put this in the law anyway? He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you, anybody who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. He says, this was not the design from the beginning. Instead, this law that God put on the books that enables divorce and these limited reasons, that was a concession that God built to bring something redemptive out of the brokenness that humans spread wherever they go. It's a step to move things back towards that original design. Right? Jesus has taken a really clear stand here, saying you cannot divorce a woman for any little reason, any whim you might have in the moment. And in that sense, his teaching really defends and cares for women by putting some very clear boundaries around the reasons that these men might come up with to ditch their wives, which would leave them defenseless and penniless. Right? Jesus is wading into this issue to say God is trying to move things back towards the original intention. And this is a law, though it's maybe not perfect, maybe it's not the original design, it puts some safeguards around that that can help us move back to this place where God's original design is restored. It's women and men of equal in worth who equally need each other because they equally, though differently, bear the image of God. And there's, there's other things from Jesus' life that we could look at, but, but hopefully this gives you a little bit of a sense of just how incredibly unusual it was the way that Jesus interacted with women. Um, so as we prepare to draw this to a close, I, I just want to consider, in light of that, a common objection that people often ask about Christianity. Um, it's no surprise that, that sometimes people look at the teaching of the Bible on women, things like that, and, and they think that the Bible or Christianity is really sexist or patriarchal or chauvinistic, it's belittling to women. Um, how many of you have ever heard somebody argue that? Yeah, a lot of us have. Or how many of you, when you read what the Bible says about women, you've kind of wondered about that yourself, right? I mean, it's a belief that many people hold, but is it true? Well, not if you go back to the very beginning, and not if you look at the way that Jesus was working to restore God's original intention. Now, to be sure, the church has not always gotten this right. And individuals in the church have not always gotten it right and still don't always get it right. And because we as imperfect people fall short of God's standards, I think it's fair when people outside the church look at us and say, ah, you know, I don't know about all this. But here's a really, really interesting thing. This is, this is true in the topic and it's true in a lot of things. Um, but a writer named Lynn Sweet put it this way. He said, sometimes the very things that are most celebrated by people who hate Christianity are the gifts of Christianity itself. Sometimes the very things that are most celebrated by people who hate Christianity are the gifts of Christianity itself. Um, let me tell you what I mean by that. So think about it. Before Christianity, in nearly all societies around the world, women, children, the poor, despised, and they were kept down. They were seen as less than the people in control. But the world began to change because Jesus and his followers insisted on the concept of human dignity and the value of every human person. Because of the way that Jesus understood God's original design, where everybody, male or female, young or old, healthy or sick, they had equal worth because they equally bore God's image, followers of Jesus began to interact with people and make different decisions and act differently, and it changed the world. Because Christians felt like the sick and the fatherless had equal worth, they were the first people to build hospitals and start orphanages. Uh, because Christians believed that women had equal worth, it was Christians who took the lead in educating women 
and in advocating for them to have a voice and a vote in the world. And here's the thing, right? The very fact that women today have agency, that they have a public voice to criticize the way that followers of Jesus haven't always lived out his teaching, that the fact that they can do that is a direct result of the way that the world has already been shaped by these values. Right? Sometimes the very things that are most celebrated by people who hate Christianity, like the idea that every person matters, that every voice matters, that we have the right to call out injustice when we see it, those things are the gifts of Christianity itself. See, what we need to remember is that God's original design didn't involve seeing women as second-class citizens, but human beings went against God's original design. And the consequences of that are still all in our world today. Uh, But when Jesus came back to life and the Spirit gave birth to the church, God's redemptive plan took a huge leap forward. And his followers, which includes a lot of us, empowered by his Spirit, found concrete ways to begin to change things. And it is up to us, it is God's call on our lives to continue that work, to continue to advocate for God's design to once again take root and to flourish in our world. And when we fall short of that, we can confess our failures, we can ask for his forgiveness, and we can move forward in his grace and his power. But we need to remember that Jesus believed that all people have equal worth because all people bear the image of God. And that should impact the way we live today. It should impact the way that we treat and advocate for women for sure, but it doesn't stop there. Go back to that story of the Samaritan woman at the well that I mentioned at the beginning. She was considered less than by Jewish men in that day for lots of reasons. She's the wrong gender. She's the wrong ethnic group, practiced the wrong religion. She made the wrong kind of choices. She lived the wrong kind of life. But none of that mattered to Jesus. In his eyes, she was of equal worth to everyone else because she was equally made in God's image. So she too deserved his respect and his attention, and his time. She, too, deserved the opportunity to hear about the full and free life that can only come from a relationship with him. So in just a moment, we're going to sing a final song together, but as we prepare to do that, I, I just, we're going to take some time and pray that God would help us know exactly what it is he's calling us to do with this today. You know, our world has changed a lot since the days of Jesus, uh, but the call on our lives hasn't changed. Followers of Jesus aren't allowed to see anyone as less than for any reason, gender, race, wealth, poverty, sexual orientation, the job you hold, what's in your past, the values that drive them. The Jesus that I wish you knew realized that everyone is of equal worth because they equally reflect God's image. And, And that belief changed the way that Jesus interacted with every person he met. And that belief led followers of Jesus over the last 2,000 years to live in such a way that our world has been forever changed. And our world still can be changed if we allow that belief to shape how we view and treat others as well. Let's pray that God would help us do that. God, thank you for the opportunity to come together and to to study your word today. Um, You know, as somebody who grew up in the 21st century, like, the way that you treat women seems normal to me. Um, but it was so different at that time. But it wasn't that you were just trying to stir up trouble for no reason. You were trying to point people back toward God's original design, where you didn't separate people into other classes of I'm worth more and they're worth less because they have this, but I'm like this. And God, in so many ways, our world has changed and become a healthier place because of the way that your followers have lived that out over the years. But we recognize, Lord, that there's still a lot of brokenness in our world. So would you call us to be a part of it? Would you help us know what it looks like for us to live in light of the fact that this is true? 
Would you help each of us have eyes to see every person that we meet as being equal value to us? Um, God, it, it doesn't seem like the changes that you made in the world were big things, but because they've changed the world, and like this is just the air we breathe now. Uh, but we believe, Lord, that you have done great things, that when you were here on earth, you lived in such a way that, that made real change in our lives and in our world possible. And when we see what you have done, uh, we are just so grateful. So would you help us know how you are calling and inviting us to be a part of the work that you're doing in the world today? Amen.